These are the confessions of American Christians repenting of American Christianity. This is the world we made. I feel like this is a pretty dangerous question, perhaps, but what is your perception and has your perception been of the pro-life movement in your churches and out of it? Some of the most godly people are in the pro-life movement, wonderful people. Mother Teresa had an opportunity to spend a couple of days with her when we brought her to St. Louis to speak to the General Assembly. What an honest woman. What a zealous woman. What a truthful woman. She had real serious issues doctrinally. I suspect she was a universalist. I wrote her and asked her after I spent time with her with my wife and daughter Heather, and she sort of denied it. Mm. But what a bracing understanding of the nature of sin she had. She said, if I had the power, she said this at General Assembly in front of all of St. Louis, everyone was there, Cardinal, everybody. She said, if I had the power, I would build a prison and I would put in it all doctors who have anything to do with abortion. They're murderers. <laughs> she also said, this was privately, she said she would not allow any of the babies that she rescued over in Calcutta to be adopted by America anymore because of us killing our unborn. She said, I can't trust any of those children to you as a nation. I think of the Operation Rescue People and the people out in Wichita. That would have been in, I want to say the late 80s. I don't know the exact year, but I was out there to do a wedding in the Mennonite community. And everybody in the Mennonite farm communities was going down and trying to shut down the abortuaries in Wichita. It was the most hopeful time in the history of our country on pro-life things because it was the closest to shutting down by civil action. And they were being arrested, they were being beaten, they were being arrested falsely, they were being accused falsely, and so they had gotten to the habit of using video cameras and videotaping everything that was done. But in the wedding that I was doing, one of the brothers, it was a family of 15 or 16 children, one of the brothers was arrested and in prison, and he had a large family and a farm. All the other brothers were just doing all his farm work, and that's how they handled anybody that was arrested. Godly, godly, godly people. Mm. But also charlatans like Randall Terry. Abortion attracts a certain type of man who is looking for a very loud and uh, a trump card morally. The kind of man who wants moral catharsis. The yeah, kind of man who yeah. is after, because he has his own guilty conscience. He's looking for a great big place where he can make a great big stand and have a kind of personal catharsis. He can avoid then dealing with the sin in his own life that he feels like he can't overcome. And so there are all kinds of ways that you seek out the great big issue, the great big thing, the great big place where you can go and take a great big moral stand and feel like you are now 
the righteous one. Yeah. Because abortion is so evil, it just attracts the kind of person who wants to do that sort of thing in order to avoid the sin in their own heart and, and all, the guilt and, of their lives. And all the sheep think he's a hero. That's right. I would use Randall Terry as an example. These are men who later you find out that he's divorced his wife. The men within a few years have a gay boyfriend. Yeah, right? yeah. And I remember protesting outside of Terry Schiavo where the judges were starving her to death. And there was Randall Terry there. Oh, my. And all the Queen lights of the television, everybody, all the attention. He paraded through there as if he was the king of kings. And it was just repulsive because you knew it had nothing to do with Terry Schiavo. Now, I know I can't really say that because I can't see inside his heart. His self-importance, his attempt to get all attention for himself. And so that's part of the pro-life movement. You always have these men who are leading pro-life movements who are, there has to be a word. I would just say they're charlatans. They just know how to live at the place of current moral concern. It's just their snake oil that yeah, they're selling. Yeah, yeah. And they're just out for money and out for fame and out for sex. Mm -hmm. And they can't handle any question of themselves. There's no humility. There's no meekness. There's no nothing. And so that also is the pro-life movement. And then in the pro-life movement are honest pagans. And I would say that Nat Hentoff was one of them who... He was on the board of the ACLU for the state of New York. He's one of the best jazz historians the world has ever had. And he was a columnist for the Village Voice, very much countercultural. And he came out to UW-Madison. I went to her. There were only about 15, 20 of us there. I don't know who brought him. But afterwards, in the Q&A, I said to him, I said, Nat, because I had loved him, seeing what he wrote in The Atlantic on infanticide and stuff. I said, as an atheist, why are you so concerned about it? abortion. He said, well, he said, an atheist life is all we have. <laughs> and so there are some wonderfully honest pagans who are pro-life because they have some consistency internally, which is something that I see woefully lacking among most Christians. Mm -hmm. And then there are the sacramentalists. There are always people saying the rosary and, oh my goodness, Oh, it was oppressive down in Florida with Terry Schiavo. Their icons and their crosses and their masses and their rosaries. And it was like a medieval, instead of a tournament, it was like a medieval pilgrimage. <laughs> and it was really oppressive. I don't know if you've ever been outside of an abortion with a bunch of Catholics. There's always Roman that group. Yeah. But they just drive you bonkers because... They just endlessly, holy mother of grace, blessed are thou among women, blessed are from their womb. Jesus! Jesus! I have a friend that converted to Catholicism, and I said to him, do you say the rosary after he converted? And he said, oh, yes. I said, why, John? Why? And he said, to be honest with you, he was an erudite man. He said, well, to be honest with you, he said, saying the rosary repetitively, I find it comforting, sort of like the click-clack in riding a train. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, unquote. So I would say some of the best people I have ever known in my life. I met and introduced my father at the Americans United for Life conference. My dad was on the board of reference for AUL. And 
I introduced him to Joe Scheidler, and I don't know if anybody remembers who Joe Scheidler was, but he was original direct action guy that was outside of abortuaries with a bullhorn. He was about 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, Roman Catholic guy. He was wonderful. Joan Andrews was wonderful. Joan Andrews is a woman that was put in prison by the judge, and she said that the reason she would continue to go back to the abortuaries was that if she had been alive at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, she wanted to be under the cross as the blood flowed. And so she would be where the blood was flowing because that was her love for Jesus. Hmm. It's like, can you even imagine an evangelical saying something like that? You think of Dickens, those were the best of people, those were the worst of people. <laughs> That's how I would talk about the pro-life movement. So I spent about 10 years I was the executive vice president of Presbyterian's Pro-Life. It was actually a fairly substantial organization, had a significant budget, had an executive director, Terry Schlossberg, who I recommended we hire. She's now chairman of the board of Alliance Defending Freedom, Herb Schlossberg's wife, did a lot of writing. And so for those 10 years, I was deeply involved in opposing abortion, the anti-abortion movement. Then I took a church in Bloomington, and when I took the church, I had a vote of 76%, with 24% of the congregation opposing my coming. And anybody that knows anything about pastors and getting a call to a church knows that the common wisdom is that you don't accept a call unless you get over 95% of the vote. It was a church that had lost hundreds, several hundred, two, three hundred people in the few years before I came. It was deep in division. Well, you can imagine taking that church. The moment I stepped on site, right before I got there, they burned the sanctuary down. The walls weren't burned down, but everything in it was burned because it was such a fractious, fragmented, schismatic, divisive, wacko church that they forgot to blow out the Advent wreath candles when everybody left the church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and that's such a typical example of what that church was. And so every waking minute of my life was that church, except that I had always felt that if I ever moved to a community with an abortuary, I would have to go protest. And so I would go down on Thursdays, which is when they did the killing, and I would take my children with me, and I would parade outside with signs and do everything I could to call those killing their children to not do it. And... I got to know the woman who was the public relations director for Planned Parenthood. And when I would be outside, if it was a hot day, she would bring a cup of cold water to my children. And she was a woman who, she liked to show herself morally superior to me. I knew she was doing it. We were on friendly terms. She'd come out, we'd talk. The first time I met her, I asked her why it was that so many of the women who were pro-abortion had grown up in godly homes. And she said, huh, that's true for me. My parents, I think she said that they were Methodist missionaries. Hmm. Her dad, I think she said, was a Methodist missionary. And then she looked at me and she said, well, you asked the question, why do you think it is? And I looked at her and I said, well, I think Chesterton was right, who said that the anti-Christian is always a half-Christian gone mad. Hmm. And that was our first conversation. Well... I got to feel conscientiously, I got to feel that there should not be such bonhomie between us, that there was something that was a failure in me. Because I kind of felt morally superior too, that I had a friend 
who was profiting from the killing of unborn children, and I was not intolerant of her. And so one day, I'm walking with my daughter, Heather. She's going off to Taylor University. We're on Kirkwood, Main Dragon Town, just past the sample gates in front of the library. And I see this woman out in front of the library with a bunch of older women standing in a circle, and she's regaling them about something. I think about Himmler and other officers under Hitler walking outside the gates of the concentration camps and being greeted by the citizens of the community because they're very important men while the smoke rises from the incinerators. That, that was the picture that came to me when I saw her. And so I said to Heather, Heather, would you please go across the street? So she went across the street. So I walked up to the woman and I was not rude in terms of brushing people aside or anything like that. But they parted, and I walked up to her, and she knew me, and I knew her, and I stood about three feet from her, looked her in the eyes, and, and I said to her, say her name is Jane, I said, Jane, killing babies is terribly wicked. And I just looked in her eyes, she said nothing, nobody said anything, and then I walked over, and Heather and I had dinner. Two days later, on Saturday, we went to the farmer's market, and I had our little son, Taylor, who was probably a year old at the time, on my shoulders, and the other children around me, and my wife with me. And I looked to my right, and there was this woman, Jane, say, is her name. She was right next to me. And I looked at her, and I said, Jane, killing babies is a terribly wicked thing. And to make a long story short, a few days later, I was in the senior pastor's office at the church I served. And I got a phone call. The secretary said, Detective so-and-so from the police department in Bloomington wants to talk to you. So I pick up the phone. And very quickly, it was clear that this woman had called the police to complain that I was stalking her. And so I said to the detective, I said, now, I have never even crossed a street to talk to her. But if she is next to me, I will continue to say that to her, yes. Well, he said, it might be good for you to write her and tell her that you're not this, that, and the other thing, and this, that, and the other thing. So I wrote her a letter, and I said, I'm sorry that you have, have not appreciated me speaking to you, but this is part of the calling of a pastor. I'm to be a prophet. Well, then, she filed an injunction, a restraining order against me, and said that I had been physically intimidating. It was a lie. It was, it was perjury. It was perjury. I had never physically intimidated her in any way, but then the newspaper wrote it up. Well, once the newspaper wrote it up, I knew that the elders would turn on me and fire me. I knew it. I knew that my ministry at that church was over when this woman accused me of physically intimidating. And I explained to the elders that I had had Taylor, a little toddler on my shoulders, my wife next to me, my little daughters. Come on. You're not physically intimidating anybody when you have your family members with you. The idea that I would physically intimidate anybody, I mean, I am 6'2", but it was not my desire to intimidate anyone. It was my desire to rebuke and to shame. And that does not constitute grounds for an injunction. If it did, every pastor in the country would have to have injunctions issued against him for every member of his congregation, assuming that every pastor knows the proper usefulness of shame. She got her injunction, and for the next 20 years, up till the present, I have not been as involved in pro-life work. And I do believe that part of the reason is that I ended up getting fired from that church. Now, of course, I didn't actually get fired because they tried to fire me, the elders did, and the congregation voted them down overwhelmingly. <laughs> and yet, within a couple of months, I resigned. 
it only takes about six men in a church if they're rich and if they're professors to get you fired. And if it's their wives, it only takes three. And I had the women of the church who were rich and influential and thought they were something. And they hated my guts. They tried to buy me out. Their words were, suitable remuneration can be found. And they wanted me to resign. And I do believe that ever since then, the combination of being fired from that church and falsely accused, the elders said I lied about what had happened between me and that woman. I had not lied at all. And I think that ever since then, I have simply, I don't want to say it, but I think I went for a couple decades just sort of demoralized. And I will say that the years in pro-life anti-abortion work were demoralizing. There was nobody who was interested in helping. It was the most bedraggled bunch of poor, uninfluential, despised people who were involved in pro-life other than mm. the charlatans. And so that's the condemnatory thing that can be said about my involvement in pro-life in the last 20 years, and now 25. But there's another side to it. And the other side is that I came to realize that the real issue of Satan's attack on the church was not so much life as sexuality, and that you could not deal with abortion and euthanasia without dealing with manhood and womanhood. And let me give you an example. My aunt, who lived as a spinster in a rent-controlled apartment in Flushing, where my dad was from in New York City, she came to live with us the last six, seven years of her life. And the last couple of years, the only thing she could do on her own was eat. That mm -hmm. was it. She ended up dying. She probably weighed 56, 57 pounds when she died. And my wife cared for her. Now, when I say that, people think, well, what does that have to do with abortion? Well, the other huge violation of the Sixth Commandment in the church today is the starvation and dehydration of our parents. And it's constant. It's been constant across my ministry that I've had to deal with, with my people. And one of the reasons it happens is that we've professionalized both birth and death. And so it's given over to the professionals and in the hospital. And hospitals are induced by insurance companies, by government agencies, by crash utilitarians to get people to die before the last 30 days of life when 90% of healthcare dollars are spent. And the only way to oppose this in the church is for us to reclaim the nature of the home and the nature of marriage, and the nature of childhood, and the nature of making love and babies, the nature of death. We have to reclaim death for the home. You can't reclaim caring for people in the last years of their life and dying at home unless you have a wife that you're committed to being a woman and to being a caregiver. And so it just became increasingly clear to me that it was not going to be effective to simply say that we shouldn't kill people. What we had to do was restore a vision for womanhood and manhood and marriage and a love of life and a love of death occurring in the midst of life. In other words, in home, with children, with noise, mm -hmm. in your bed. And so for the last 25 years, my life has been given to the issue of the nature of marriage and family life and the beauty of womanhood. Because ultimately, I don't believe we're ever going to be able to get rid of the wickedness of birth control and abortion 
until we regain the Christian understanding of what it is to be a woman. And that's not going to come to women until men learn to love and desire and get turned on by feminine women instead of lesbo killer whores. You know, I wondered when Nathan started this conversation, if you would go that direction, when he asked why the church was just ready to embrace or flat-footed or on its heels with abortion, I wondered if your answer would be because we'd already swallowed feminism, so we were already... Yeah, we did. It was over. It was over before it started. And it was over in the early 60s. Hmm. You could say it was over in the... In the church, it was over. You could say it was over in the 19th century. You could say it was over with before Margaret Sanger hit the scene or when she hit the scene. through the abolitionists. Exactly, Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you guys open that up a little bit? The abolitionist movement, if you read the biographies of guys like William Lloyd Garrison, who became an abolitionist, in pursuing the abolitionist movement, no union with slaveholders, which led eventually to the Civil War, what happened was that all the social do-gooders sort of coalesced into an amalgamation of perversity. Because what it ended up being coming was a sort of rabid egalitarianism and a rabid rebellion against authority and a rabid leveling of all distinctions. In other words, if you look at Black Lives Matter and social justice warriors and sexuality and sexual abuse, if you look at all the issues that are surrounding race in the last five years in America, there's a whole lot of bad karma there. Mm. And you may be someone who sincerely sees that there is such a thing as systematic or systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And there is such a thing as generational guilt or something. In other words, there are Christians who do see some true aspects that are associated with the BLM movement, not officially, but at the margins in the church. And yet, immediately it's assumed that you're also a feminist, that you also don't believe in authority, that there's a whole bunch, well, that's what the abolitionist movement was like. The abolitionist movement ended up being a hodgepodge of social reform things that really was tied in closely to a bunch of feminists. And it ended up being closely associated with women getting the vote, the suffragette movement. And I'm not saying I'm against women having the vote, although (laughs) if you want to read some eye-opening things, read uh, What's Wrong with the World by G.K. Chesterton. Because there are ways of thinking about that that are very, very fascinating. And I will also add that the people that have been most opposed to women voting that I have known in my life are the most intelligent women in the churches I've served. (laughs) I mean, it regularly comes up from the most bright and articulate women in our churches. You know, it's really funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So anyhow, I want you to understand the suffragette movement the radical feminist egalitarianism the temperance movement the temperance movement all these things mm-hmm. were once you start deforming things and i'm not saying that ending slavery was deformation instead of reformation i'm just saying that those who sought to reform chattel slavery had a hard time not getting lumped in together and forming an amalgamation of a lot of bad karma in terms of social movement. Well, there, so you go back and you read the people at the at the fountainhead of the abolitionist movement. 
and all the ways they're grasping for every argument, every hammer they can to win the war, to, to win the battle for the conscience of the nation on slavery. And they end up just tearing down scripture in the process. So I took a class called The Bible and Slavery. One of the books we had to read was called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. And the whole thing was a lot of the arguments that they formed way back then, they just translated one-to-one from slavery to feminism mm-hmm. and, to, and to women. Right. And they used women on the front lines of the abolitionist movement the same way that the unions used women to unionize. Because mm. you cannot deal with women on the picket lines or on the front lines the way that you deal with men. You put women on the front lines and it changes the fight. It changes the conversation. And so they found that women are a weapon. Then it just became sort of codified. Women are a weapon for social change, whether it's unionization or abolitionism. And so then the feminist movement, the temperance movement, the suffragette movement, women became a vehicle, an agent of change, social change and social reform. The communists, the socialists took hold of that. Everything sort of got put all on a great big slippery slope trajectory. And you mingle all of that then with the second great awakening and the revivalism that was sweeping the churches and women then being an agent of change for churches and it all getting sort of mingled together into a new modern American righteousness, Mm -hmm. right? It all sort of went hand in hand. And there's a lot of different things that you can read individually and not many people have done a good job of putting it all together. But for a long time, the church had just sort of, because of its... The righteous cause of opposing slavery, right? Mm-hmm. The righteous cause of undermining systems of oppression is just had sort of been already embraced whole hog. Can I talk about that for a second? I mentioned earlier that I got Terry Schlossberg to be hired as our executive director. The Presbyterian's pro-life, and I worked closely with Terry for years, was often in her home with her and her husband, Herb. I want to say that the reason that I wanted Terry to be hired was that she was well-spoken, she was educated, she carried herself well. But honestly, the truth was, the main reason I wanted her hired was because she was a woman. And I knew that the murderers of the PCUSA and the denominational offices and the other rich pastors and all the people that wanted the status quo of pro-abortion in the PCUSA would have a much harder time fighting her than any man. I knew that. And that's why I wanted Terry to be hired, okay? I did not think of it in terms of the abolitionist movement. I had already read all those biographies of William Lloyd Garrison. I was not self-conscious about what I was doing, but I want to say that I learned my lesson. Several years later, there was the requirement in the state of Wisconsin that every school district made a decision about sex education, and they had to choose a curriculum that they were going to use for sex education. At that time, the principal of one of the two schools in town and board members and teachers and the superintendent schools were in my church. I had two churches, Oak Parish, and most of them were in the town church, not the country church. And so when it came time to appoint a community committee to research sex education curricula, I suggested that my wife be put on the committee. And so we had a young family at the time, and I remember Mary Lee going off to be in the committee meetings and my feeling completely inadequate with these little babies and toddlers. 
She'd go off and I'd be home and I'd try to hold things together, but it wasn't my forte. And then when it came to the end of all the meetings, she got them to recommend a sex ed curriculum that we had found out about through Focus on the Family and Jim Dobson. And she got the committee to approve that curriculum. And then the superintendent of schools, who was an elder at that church, reversed it and got a non-abstinence curriculum to be adopted by the school board for the district. And I knew why he did it. He was an elder. And I remember realizing he had done it because that's where his bread was buttered as superintendent of schools in the state of Indiana relating to other superintendent of schools. He'd look like a buffoon to the other superintendent of schools if he allowed an abstinence curriculum to be adopted by his board. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when he did that, I asked for an appointment and I went into his office and I said to him, say his name is Tom. I said, Tom, I'm here as your pastor to tell you in your office that what you did is harmful to the eternal souls of the students over whom you have charge. And I am saying that to you as your pastor and you as my elder. He was livid. And that's all I said. And I listened to him and I left. Now, why am I telling that story? Well, I'm telling that story because I realized that I had put Mary Lee in that position to fight as a woman because I felt that it would hinder his and the other people's ability to oppose her, the very fact that she was a young, pretty mother. And I determined from that time on that I was not going to use the tools of conniving and manipulation and I was not going to be gay in fighting anymore. Now, if you don't understand what I mean by saying being gay, I mean being soft, putting women forward because they can't kick a woman the way they can kick a man. Well, it's, it's weaponizing feminine sexuality, right? And that is from the toolbox of the enemy. Of course it works. But it works. Of course it works. <laughs> it didn't work in that didn't case. Work in that case. <laughs> and I want to mm. also say that that made me realize about Terry Schlossberg that I shouldn't have done that. And it also made me change the way I preached. Because I realized that that was the same issue. That I was being soft and presenting myself as soft and not having the actions match the urgency of the work that I was undertaking. In other words, using a woman to fight and doubting yourself in preaching. They're all of a fabric. They all belie the nature of the task we're engaged in and the urgency of it spiritually. And so that's sort of my coming of age in terms of why I have not been as involved in the pro-life movement. And now I will shut up. To support the world we made and the writing and speaking of Tim Bailey, please give at patreon.com forward slash out of our minds. To support Warhorn Media more generally, you can make a tax-deductible donation at warhornmedia.com forward slash give. And don't forget to rate and review, subscribe and share. Thanks and God bless.